This podcast series is brought to you by the University of Sussex. If you're curious about what makes some apps successful and others not, this series gives you a valuable insight into seeing if your app has got what it takes. With the help of three successful app founders, we'll be investigating and answering some of your questions. I'm Chris O'Hare, your host and resident app expert with 10 years experience in software development and founder of award-winning technology consultancy, Hair Digital. We've built apps for businesses big and small. This is How to Make an App. In this episode, we'll be talking about actually building your app. And for most of you, this will require getting a developer if you don't have a technical co-founder. You will even need to pay an agency or a freelance developer or maybe even employ a developer to build your app. An agency is a company with a team of experts in app development. They'll be able to give you a wide range of skills under one roof. From designers, marketers, developers and project managers, they're a team of specialists working on projects as if they're on conveyor belts. And as a result, they're more likely, not a certainty, but to be more efficient, more reliable, deliver higher code quality, along with being more knowledgeable about app specialities and any common pitfalls. Of course, this comes at a cost, as you'll be paying for a team of professionals and their accompanying overheads. Alternatively, a freelance developer will be cheaper initially, but if they're off sick or they decide for some reason they can no longer continue building your app, then you're left with quite a headache to try and replace them, and you'll need to get another developer up to speed in a short amount of time. You also run the risk of lower code quality standards as they don't have anyone checking their work, potentially leading to problems down the road. Because freelancers tend to not have a rigid structure, they tend to be more agile, dipping in and out when you need them and helping deliver the project that's fit for purpose if requirements change over time. They also tend to have shorter timescales and can fit in your project a lot quicker than agencies who have these long pipelines of work that they need in order to survive and ensure that they can pay their employees. So how do you decide? Well, my advice is to go and talk to them and ask all the questions that concern you. Also get recommendations from your technical friends and also follow up on references. There's no harm in talking to more people to get advice about your project and the best approach for you, your timeline and your budget. You may even decide to employ a developer full-time to build your app. The kind of developer you'll need is a senior full-stack developer, which is not cheap, and they average around 45k a year plus national insurance contributions. We'll cover what full-stack means shortly, but they'll also need to be a senior with several years' experience as to be able to manage themselves. Now, you may be able to offer equity options for a reduced salary, but you need to consider that this is a full-time position and therefore there needs to be enough work for them. But if your app doesn't succeed as quickly as you'd hope and you can't afford to pay the developer, then they'll have to leave along with all that intimate knowledge that they've accrued building your app. So once you've picked a developer, you're going to need to understand some of the technical jargon. First of all, how does an app work? Well, let me give you an example of an app that I use daily, my banking app. The app is installed on my mobile device, in my case, an iPhone, which is downloaded from the Apple Store. This mobile app is called The Client, also known as The Front End. 
And once I open up the app, the first screen that I see is my dashboard with my latest balances. And that took microseconds to show me. What the app has done is taken my request that I want to see my dashboard balances and sent this off to the cloud server where there is another piece of software running. The cloud is just another word for internet. But you'll hear terms like AWS, which stands for Amazon Web Services. And yes, they are the very same ones you buy all your guests from. Or another popular one is Google Cloud. Now, these are cloud server providers and they're commonly used by developers. The software that is running on this server is the API, also called the backend. And it's where the brains of the app lives. The API or application program interface checks that this is a proper bona fide request from the app by checking all of its security credentials. The API will then check what I'm asking for. And in this case, my latest balances and fetches that balance information from the database. It will then format it, package it up and send it back to the app on the mobile device. The app checks as a bona fide message, makes it look pretty and displays my balance to me in a way I can understand. Now, coming back to what a full stack developer is, as a skill set, they are able to build the infrastructure across the whole development stack, which includes the front end, the app, the back end, which is the API, and also the server. You'll also need to understand the different technologies that you can use to build your app. The most widely used is the traditional native route. And this is where an app has been built in the code that the platform has been designed for. And this would be Swift for Apple's iOS and Java for Google's Android. The obvious drawback is that you'll need to build two separate apps for both platforms using two different coding languages, which will obviously increase the price because you'll need to build two apps. The major benefit is the apps will behave exactly as you expect, and you can build the app to use all the special features, libraries, and sensors that have been designed specifically for that platform. iOS has their own interesting features, and so does Android. When Apple released the augmented reality camera, you would be able to use these from launch, riding that publicity wave of when it first released. These apps are also more efficient in terms of battery life and performance, giving the user a better experience. But most apps won't need this level of quality for their MVP. The next route is a cross-platform app such as Xamarin or a new technology like React Native. Now, how these work is that you build an app in one language and it will be converted into native apps for both iOS and Android. If you want to use a particular feature or sensor, you have to use a cross-platforms plugin to be able to interface with this feature or sensor. The experience won't be flawless compared to the native route as you'll experience strange bugs and they're usually slower and the user interface won't look as good, but it will be cheaper as you'll only need to build one app. The other route is a progressive web app, which is basically a website that has been built to look like a mobile app. Now this isn't as well supported as the previous two options, as you can't always get them onto the Apple App Store. Google doesn't mind so much. Plus you can't access all the special features or sensors of the phones. So if you want GPS notification and access to photos, basically anything you can do on a browser, they'll work fine. But if you want anything else, you're going to struggle. 
The main benefit, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to develop as you can get a web developer to build your web app and mobile app at the same time. It's a great option if you want to test a prototype or an MVP. The last option is a no-code app builder. A no-code builder allows you to build an app using a drag-and-drop user interface with no experience of code necessary. If you asked me a few years ago, I would have said no way, but no-code builders are getting better and better over the years, and now I can really see the benefits. But it's not as easy as it sounds. You still need to provide the logic of how the app will work, and you are limited to the templated designs and structure that you're given. If you struggle to build a drag-and-drop website, then this will equally cause the same kind of problems. When you're building your app, you're going to hear about something called Agile Project Management. This is a set of methodologies that encourage projects to stay flexible. Now, the general idea around these is to make sure that you have an iterative approach to managing projects. You focus on working on small batches. You're transparent about the work progress that you work with the customer closely and you're getting feedback as fast as possible. You'll also hear something called Scrum, which is the most popular type of agile project management. In Scrum, you have a product backlog, which is the project to-do list. Tasks are picked from this backlog to work on for the next two weeks, which is called a sprint. The aim is to pick tasks that will deliver a shippable working feature after the two weeks has finished. Now, this is managed by various team members who take ownership of certain parts of the project, including a product owner and scrum master. So where things typically go wrong for people at this point is when the vision is not clearly communicated and you don't get the product that you want. Therefore, you need to make sure you're a part of the process with the developers and that you catch things that you missed. Get regular updates and see the product as it progresses. So one of the most common questions I get asked is how much does an app cost and how long does it take? And you can hear one of those annoying answers. It depends. And that's because it's subject to not just the amount of features you want, but also the difficulty that it takes to create those features. Even if your app seems straightforward with a couple of buttons on the surface, the backend logic could be incredibly difficult to build. Remember, you're essentially paying for someone's time to do this. So the more time they take, the more it will cost. Most of the time, there's also a minimum build time, depending on the agency or developer. But I haven't seen a project that takes less than around three months. In terms of how projects are built, they can even be built as time and materials, which you're paying for, depending on the time spent on the project. Or you can opt for a fixed project cost but more time is spent on the scoping phase of the project to ensure that the developer catches everything. Usually this approach includes a markup to cover any risks, which can be something like 25% extra. Earlier on, I caught up with Phil Watton, founder of Mavis, a mobile production studio app, to hear about his experience of building an app. We're a technology company primarily focused on cloud production for the television and broadcast industry. The best way to think about it is if you ever see a live show being made, maybe at a football ground or say a theatre, you'll notice some big trucks in the car park. And these big trucks are full of equipment, full of people making the show. They've got lots of cables coming in and out of them. And what we've done is we've 
taken all of the equipment in those trucks and we've put it in the cloud. It's all virtualized running in the cloud. This means two things. Firstly, you don't need to have those trucks if you're now making a TV show. You just have to connect your cameras to the cloud. The second thing it means is that all the people that would have traditionally driven to the car park no longer have to do that. They just connect to the cloud from home. And in our case, they use a suite of apps to then control the cloud-based virtualized equipment. So it means you can make all sorts of programs from all sorts of distributed teams all over the place uh, without the need for this big capital amount of equipment. What did you think of the idea of using apps as the mobile platform for choice? Well, we were doing a load of single camera production, actually, at the time when we would go off to a location, we'd do a bit of scouting, we'd film a bit of a rough cut with an iPhone, and then a couple of weeks later, we'd send a crew along. And what we discovered was when we looked at the footage we'd made on the iPhone, it wasn't too bad. From a narrative point of view, it was really great because actually it was much more creative, much more flexible than using a big crew. And we thought if we could just control the iPhone in the same way that we could control the movie cameras, then we might actually find it's a usable, proper camera. So we decided to have a go at you know, building some technology to see if we could make it work, which we did. We then thought, well, this is actually quite a nice little product. Let's pop it on the App Store and see if somebody will like to buy it. Now, I'm glossing over quite a lot of work when I say pop it on the App Store. Obviously, this takes quite a long time to take it from a bit of a prototype to a product. But we did it. To our surprise, somebody else bought it and then somebody else bought it. And before we knew it, we had quite a lot of people using our apps, broadcasters, filmmakers, and it started to make quite a lot of money. But we were spending all our weekends, evenings, you know, that moment between breathing in and breathing out, any spare time when you're not doing anything else, we were spending working on it and still trying to, you know, do our day jobs. And we realised that we had basically a choice, either to give up and take the money and just have a massive party or to reinvest the money and try and turn it into a, a company. So that's what we did. We hired our first engineer. We got an office in town, a little office that absolutely stank of poo. So we very, very quickly got another office and we started growing the product. But we very quickly realised that we'd just got an app and we'd brought all the features of a professional camera to that app. There wasn't really anything else we could do. It was a standalone thing and we really wanted a way of growing this outside the app. So we started looking around other things we knew about and how we could maybe take the same approach. And we said, well, you know, we know a lot about multi-camera live production. And we know a lot about virtualizing stuff because we've just done it on the iPhone. Let's see if we can virtualize multi-camera live production equipment and put it in the cloud. And that's what we did. We built a prototype first and took it round to some industry angels who enabled us to get our first round of investment. We then made a beta version of it. Then we got our second round of investment, actually right in the middle of a pandemic. So that was a, a pretty good achievement, I think, on the guys that did that. And we are now in the final stages of productizing and bringing the thing to market. So we started off with one engineer and we've now got a total of about seven of us, not all of whom are engineers, but pushing that forward now to roll that out as a product. So why do you focus on software as a service? Software's got itself a bit of a problem whereby people want software. They don't really want to pay for software, but they want free updates for life. This is a big issue because you can't run a business where nobody wants to pay for your product. One of the reasons is that people view digital products and physical products in a similar way, but get confused. 
say for example you have a loaf of bread it's a tangible thing you know it's flour yeast you know you can eat it and you're happy to pay for it because you know you can pick it up it's weighs something but software is completely abstract it doesn't even exist unless it's actually running inside an environment and because of that i think people feel it should be free because it doesn't weigh anything but in both cases they forget the amount of effort that's put into the factory you know to make a million loaves of bread a day you've got to have a big factory that's been designed and built and it's got people working in it and the same thing goes for apps but because it's not seen people don't join the dots really software as a service is quite a good thing because it does two things first of all it means that your software isn't running on some random environment somewhere it's not running on a phone or a computer that you don't understand or you don't know what other software is there because you are running that on a machine or on a number of machines actually that you're provisioning in a way that you understand and can control the second thing is you are taking away a load of effort from the end user and saying all you need to do is push this button and your whole system will work. So because of that, people are happy to pay for it because they can see that you are doing some work that they are no longer having to do. So they pay every time it's being used and they're very happy for that. And we as developers are very happy for that because every time a product is being used, we are being paid. So it means that we get a very good life cycle it's constantly up to date it's always state of the art we always know it's going to work because we manage that end to end system it seems ios has been your main go to but has that always been the case well we don't actually only focus on ios now the first app we built uh, was focused on ios for two reasons a no one on android will pay for anything and secondly we were doing very low level hardware stuff using video and audio that is very very difficult to do if you don't understand the hardware and we looked at doing an android equivalent and we'd have to produce a specific one for a google phone a specific one for a samsung phone a specific one for a huawei phone we'd end up having to produce multiple different versions of that app even though it would just look to us like it was an android app so coupled with the fact that nobody really wants to pay for it and we have a lot of peers in this industry that have android apps as well and they'll all tell us that they wish they'd never done the android app because it just doesn't make any money so from our point of view focusing on ios was the easy choice because we understood the hardware and people would pay for it that's not where we are now we have a good core of stuff on ios and mac os we also have windows versions and we will be bringing some small functionality to android as well in the near future when you're making these apps, are you building them natively using Swift or are you looking at cross-platform technologies? Well, we actually spent quite a lot of time looking at how we could do cross-platform, but actually we use Swift and Swift is a very good language. Actually, I really like Swift. It's very good for software engineering in general. It's a high-level language, but that will compile down to a really tight set of instructions. In fact, if you write something in Swift and something in C, you will quite often find the Swift will compile quicker. In fact, you can do Swift and assembly experiments and I can't get assembly to be quicker than Swift. I mean, I can get them to be the same, but it does optimise really, really well. But at the same time, it also gives you some high level constructs as well. So it's a nice language that covers all the areas and you can connect to C and assembly and, and C++. So you, you can do all sorts of stuff. And it's a really nice language to work with on iOS and macOS, but it's also open source. So we also use Swift on our server. We use it in embedded software. We use it on Windows. And we started to look at cross-platform things, looking at all sorts of different cross-platform technologies to see if we could 
build some of the interfaces once and just repurpose them on other devices. But we realized that due to the networking that we need and due to the video and audio processing we need, we couldn't actually do it at the quality that we wanted, that our users were demanding. So we built our own cross-platform system, really, based on Swift, C, and a little bit of other stuff around the edges. So we have a sort of environment that we've built the cross-platform bit. We can therefore make some of our apps, um, certainly the desktop apps for macOS and Windows as building one app, but we know how to do the low-level bits for each individual operating system where we need to. Give us an understanding of the infrastructure of how your app works in, in terms of the communication with the server and down to the app. The Pro Camera app, the original app that we made, had no external communication. It was just one app, actually. But the way these apps work, they are remote controlling the cloud infrastructure. So the cloud infrastructure is a load of virtual equipment and the apps remote control it. Now, there are some web technologies around that will help you with this, but actually we can't use those because it doesn't really fit with the real-time nature of our system. So we actually split our system into two parts. We have a real-time system and a non-real-time system. The non-real-time system, we actually run a set of technologies which are referred to as serverless. This is all AWS backed. And serverless means that you can produce a unit of functionality, one sort of operation. You then host it, you just give it to AWS and they run it when you want it. So you say, oh, I want to run this function. They just run it. You don't have to worry about any infrastructure, any servers running underneath it. They'll deal with all that for you. So you write one of these little functions, pop it online, and then all you do is pay for the time that that function is executing. So it scales really, really well, and it's really cost effective because the less people that use it, the less you pay. The more people you use it, the more you pay. So it's really nice. But that doesn't really work in a real-time environment. What happens when you want the real-time environment to run and you actually want to make a TV show you sort of hit a button and then in the background, we spin up a whole infrastructure of virtualized equipment to run. Now, we have to process video frames every single frame and audio frames every single frame because if you drop something, it will look and sound bad. So we've got to not drop video or audio frames. So this has to be very real time. So therefore, all the apps will connect to the real-time platform with a bespoke synchronization system that we've had to make to enable the large amount of data that's going both directions. It's a bit like telemetry. You know, there's a large amount of data that's going in both directions constantly that has to always stay in sync and enable multiple control surfaces to understand what's going on in the cloud and therefore give you the appropriate feedback as to what's going on. To enable us to move video and stuff around the open internet, we've also had to develop our own video transmission protocols. It's a specific one actually called MLSP, which stands for the Mavis Live Streaming Protocol. The Mavis Live Streaming Protocol is a way of getting very, very low latency, very high reliability, open internet connectivity of video and audio. So you can put a camera at a football ground, connect it to the cloud, with MLSP and it will make sure it gets there. I think we can do glass to glass in about seven frames. So it's pretty quick. So when you first hired a, a developer, were they a freelancer? And why did you pick a freelancer if you did? Yeah, so our first employee was a, a full-time engineer, actually. We wanted a full-time engineer because we wanted to grow the company and we don't want to necessarily outsource that. But we do use freelancers for specific parts of the journey. And one of the things is graphics design and user experience design. Both are really, really important. And we don't want non-experts doing that job. 
but we don't have enough work to permanently hire graphics designers and user experience designers. And also, a lot of work is done in the graphics design and user experience space, which will impact a vast amount of development time. So actually, it's very bottom heavy where the UX and graphics design can maybe take a month or two, and that can spawn maybe a year's worth of development. So it's more efficient for us to employ the experts where and when we need them and keep the core business in-house. And one of the things we do with graphics design specifically, actually, is we will pick different graphics designers for different things. So the graphics designers that we use for drawing the buttons and the faders and all sorts of interesting things like that on the apps, that's not the same team that does all our marketing and web and brochure type content because that's again a different flavor you kind of want the people that are expert in their areas to do that thing because they will bring a lot to the table and it's much much better i think even though freelancers can be a bit more expensive than having someone in-house i think you get a better job when you have people who love what they're doing working on your product because you get their passion and their experience working on your thing and i think that's great so how long did it take to develop the mavis app As it's a software as a service, it's never going to be finished. It's taken us about two-ish years, I think, to get to this point. The phone app we developed in about nine-ish months, I think. But this one's taken a lot longer because we've had to develop so much more bespoke technology. But we don't ever perceive this as being developed. We're currently in our going-to-market stage, so it's just in a release candidate stage, actually. So we're in a sort of version one, but we're already working on versions two, three, and four, and it will continually evolve. And because it's software as a service, of course, we can do that. We'll evolve the architecture along with the software and the apps themselves. How did you determine what features to develop? Interestingly, because this is quite a new area, there are no existing customers So we did a few things. We used a lot of our own experience. We used a lot of experience of our investors. We picked our investors very carefully, actually. And we made sure that they were people placed in industry at the right point to be able to help us, not just financially, but with a lot of expertise. And we sort of drew all that together, did a lot of user experience design around it. And that really helped us to decide which features we wanted to implement. So then we implemented them. We then ran the beta program and realised that we'd implemented totally the wrong set of features because actually what everyone wanted was something else and they realised that actually you could do everything. So it meant that we had to go and build a load more features. An interesting thing was during the pandemic, we were just about to launch a particular type of thing just when COVID hit. But As COVID hit, of course, it meant everyone started doing a lot of remote working. We had a subtly different feature set designed for a subtly different broadcast market, actually. And we very quickly pivoted at the start of the pandemic to focusing more on what people needed now. But while at the same time, keeping an eye on the fact that hopefully the pandemic will end at some point and we're not going to end up with something specifically focused on being able to do lockdown programming. It's a difficult thing actually trying to work out what features you want because a lot of the time if you say to someone what do they want they won't know or they'll just tell you what they've already got. I find it quite good to be able to sit there and gauge what is already out there what people do and then try and bring fresh approaches to it. And one of the fresh approaches that we did actually was take a different approach to the usability of it. If you're sitting in a truck, you have a big truck and there's lots of buttons and stuff. And one of the reasons that a truck is big is because it needs all that equipment in it and maybe all those people in it and things like that. But when you're in a different scenario, when you're, say, doing the same job from your sofa with an iPad, 
you can do different things. You don't need necessarily physical buttons in the same way. And maybe some things that were a screen on an angle poise arm, well, you don't necessarily need that anymore. You can do it in other ways. And made us really think hard about how our users in this new world of being remote or, or not necessarily in the same place as everyone else, how you might operate this stuff. And one of the things that I was really pleased about, actually, when we first started to take it out to real people, we gave it to veteran TV directors who just sat down and with about 10 seconds worth of tutorials, were cutting a show. Then we started giving it to people who weren't veteran TV directors and with a few seconds, they were starting to cut live shows as well. So I'm really pleased actually with the way the user experience went. I'm really pleased with the way that all that has come together. I'm really pleased that people just sit down and use it. And that for me cements that we've got it right. I think the most dangerous thing you can do is be a developer and develop the user experience. And that might even be you running a team of developers or you as a developer itself. If you do your own user experience, you see it from your point of view, you've been thinking about it maybe for months or even years. If you bring your insular thought process to it, you will have something that, yeah, you can use and nobody else can. And I think it's really important to try and get all those ideas and bring them together and just try it with lots of different people to produce the features in the way that people want them. Finally, if we're going to give anyone keen to build their own app one or two tips, what pearls of wisdom from your own experience can you share with us firstly that people make a mistake thinking that they can do a big project with one developer you know even if you get a full stack developer they only know one type of stack getting the right development team is quite important and another thing that i think we should be a little bit mindful of is getting a student doing it free is not the answer even if a student turns up and says i'll do it for 900 pounds i've literally never seen 900 pound in my life i'll do six months work for 900 pounds you will waste the 900 pounds you'll kill the student they won't get a degree it'll be horrible and everyone will hate everyone phil watton founder of mavis a mobile production studio app thank you for listening and if you'd like a cheat sheet for this episode please go to www hair.digital forward slash how to make an app. In the next episode, we'll be talking about how to launch and market your app. Okay, so there's a lot that I can be doing to build my audience and help this launch be as successful as it possibly could be. So people talk about optimizing your app for the app store. What do they mean by this? This has been a Fresh Air production for the University of Sussex.